Well, today's another great day. Really, really lucky to have Hugh Remington in the car. Well-respected, well-renowned news reporter, author, dad. And look, I, for, for those that don't know, I know Hugh because his children go to my children's school and we've been friends for a few years. And when I said, would you mind participating in the celebrity chat with me as for the Aussie Uber podcast, he was more than happy to jump in. And today we're going to just do a little bit of a tour around Sydney. We've got a few errands we need to run for him, which is good. But uh, here we are. We're not far from grabbing Hugh now. We'll get Hugh, jump him in the car, and we'll be off and running. We'll get him to jump in, and we'll be off. How are you, mate? Christian, how are you? Very good, thank you, sir. So as I was just saying to, uh, uh, as, my, as I said in my preamble, uh, I'm really, obviously, very pleased that you decided to, to I could get you in the car, and uh, we're running a few errands for you today. Can I just say, it's a flash of car than mine. Well, you've got the big Land Rover. Least, at least a cleaner one. Well, yeah. Well, I actually get it cleaned every day at the moment because of all the uh, the issues around uh, health yeah, and safety. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, again, mate, look, I really do appreciate you jumping in. Pleasure, and, uh, Christian. Thanks for giving me a ride. We're going to go and take some stuff across to uh, uh, a, a fellow I know over on the, the North Shore and drop it off. And then take you back to back to the office. Back to the, back to the TV station. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So... I think what I and as I said in my last uh, uh, celebrity chat with uh, with Ben, I don't I don't research the person as much as I know you and I know you quite well. I don't know much about you, um, and I talk about you. Know, this is talking about your childhood and where you came from and that sort of stuff. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is just start there, mm. and just to get a bit of an understanding about who Hugh is and where you grew up and where you were born and that sort of stuff and then we can sort of delve into a bit more sure. of your you know future life and older life and career as we as we move forward so where were you born Hugh? I was born in Sri Lanka I was born in the uh, in the hill country my dad was a, a tea planter as they call it in those days basically managed tea estates and my mum who we met there was a, uh, a nurse with the Royal Air Force uh, when they met and then in the noble ways of the time, uh, if, a, if a woman in the British Defence Forces got married, she had to leave. So uh, Leave the Defence Force? Yeah, leave. So she was a flying officer in the Royal Air Force uh, as a nurse. Got married and that was the end of that career, much to her uh, frustration, I think. But they wound up on a uh, series of tea estates and I was born there as one of uh, four boys, ultimately, the second. And, uh, and it was a kind of a... A paradise, really. I, my recollections of early childhood were of, of green, uh, the green of the hills, the green of the lawn in front of the house, um, you know, clouds in the sky, and just freedom. That was my early recollection wow. of life. Yeah. Uh, well, your your brothers, what what uh, what are their names? And you so my older brother's saying? Paul. Yep. Um, yeah, all of my brothers are tremendously proud of them. Fantastic people. Old, older brother is the best older brother you could ever ask for. He was a, he was a, uh, a gentle and uh, empathetic, thoughtful character um, and really, really nice man. My younger brother was flat, brilliant, Sean. So he wound up becoming a consultant immunologist. So he, he's an immunologist. He's also a pathologist by full training and he's also got a PhD chucked in there as well. So he's an associate professor at Sydney University and other things. He's he's brilliant. And my youngest brother, Adrian, um, 
is also in his own way brilliant. He, he went into corporate, got a law degree, went into corporate stuff and wound up being the head of of Zurich Insurance for Australia and New Zealand at one stage. So, um, you know, for a bunch of kids who ultimately went through state schools in New Zealand, because after Sri Lanka, the family upped and upsticks and went to New Zealand. Uh, it's, it's You've a, turned out all right. Well, it's a tribute to the... It's a tribute to the New Zealand public school education system, I think, more than anything. So how long, how, how old were you when you, when you moved to New Zealand? I was uh, five. Okay. Uh, just in time to start school. Well, so we're just pulling up to Hugh's house because Hugh at the moment needs to go and get his little parcels for his mate at French's Forest. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll re-continue that, uh, that school life and get a bit more out of you, Hugh, once you uh, pick up your parcels. I'll just pull him behind this truck. Beautiful. Oh, there's a park right out the front for us. Fantastic. And uh, I'll see you in a minute or two, lady. Take your time. All right, so now that Hugh's back in the car, when he said he'd get a couple of parcels, I thought it was going to be like a little <laughs> envelope or two. Um, so you said how you moved from Sri Lanka to New Zealand, but before we go to that, uh, what took your father to the tea plantations and, and what made him get involved in that? It's interesting because both my parents, my, my dad was born in 1928. They're both still alive. Dad was born in 1928 and my mum in 1930. So they were both kids in wartime. My mum was in uh, England, her father was in the Royal Navy and uh, she remembers bombings and that sort of carried on and they got evacuated up, up country as many were. My um, uh, father was on the island of Jersey and it was actually invaded by the, um, by the Germans and so he was under German occupation <clears throat> from 1940 till the end of the war because even after the D-Day landings they didn't go back and they didn't have fight over Jersey because it was not strategically significant. So he remained under German occupation for five years of his, of his life as he was growing up through his teens. And I think for both of them, the hardships of that time marked them in different ways. Um, it certainly meant that as kids growing up, we were uh, not allowed to grizzle about food, for example. I look at my kids and they're very fussy about food and and there's, there's you know the, the notion of having choice about food is much more prevalent nowadays whereas kids we weren't uh, and that was a function of of what happened and my father um <clears throat> he um so when you say you weren't allowed to grizzle about food though i mean what what did he say to you that all we had at those, of those times were X, Y, Z? Well, they didn't really say it. If, if anyone said it, it was mum and she'd talk about ration cards and those sorts of stuff or stuff being rationed or, you know, how valuable butter was, you know, because butter was... A gold. It w- was gold, you know, and, um, and fresh fruit, for example. So, um, you know, very much driven into us was if it's, if it's on your plate, you eat it and you don't, you don't make a fuss that it's not your favourite thing. Um, you eat it. And... And I absorb some of that into myself. I, I, I get annoyed by overly pernickety, particularly with kids, you know, yeah. the reluctance to try food or, or, or that sort of stuff, or a demand almost that you've got to lay on a menu for kids to meet all their separate preferences, um, when really I was brought up with this is, this is what, what it is. And, and it marked me in different ways. Another thing which with my dad, he, he was from a quite a well-off family, but he found in the war that the only way they got through it, he said, was with a sense of community. And so he really dedicated himself through his life towards, you know, be, being involved in community organisations. Uh, he, was a, he was a good administrator, so he'd run charities and stuff like that. And so that sense of there being a, um, 
we're, we are individually better when we're all better. Yeah. And I think that that really was, the, I suppose, the core to my family education. When, when they left, when you left Sri Lanka as a family, uh, what happened to the tea plantations? <laughs> well, um, they kept going, but it, it had become uh, untenable, really, for the British, and probably rightly so, for British folks to come out here and run, come out, come out to Sri Lanka and run tea estates. And my father understood that. So, but then they had where to go. You know, they went back to, to Britain. They took us back as kids. And we looked at a few places that seemed to me freezing cold and miserable. And it's funny because Britain at that time would have considered itself to be still somewhat the centre of the world. Um, you know, we're talking the mid-60s, still somewhat Commonwealth and Empire, the Queen and a castle, all this sort of thing. And they would have seen, a, you know, most people would have seen a place like Sri Lanka as being sort of third world. But from our perspective, Sri Lanka was... Um, was a wonderful place. The and, paradise. And Britain was like, a, was like being exiled to Siberia. You know, I remember the snow and the cold and being sick and, and we couldn't wait to get out. Uh, you know, we, we, we weren't old enough to make complaints about it, but suddenly they said, oh, we're going off, we're going on a ship again. And <laughs> so what was, what was it like getting on a ship? Well, in those days, that's how you traveled. So for us, it was like, you, you know. As young lads, was it exciting? Yeah, yeah, yeah well, I guess so. We just, you know, There'd be all the hustle and bustle of getting on a ship, and then we'd get on a ship, and then we'd be across. You know, we'd, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of fun. I, it was just what you did. Yeah. Um, so New Zealand, you, you arrive in New Zealand. Yeah. And whereabouts were you in New Zealand? So we we went to uh, Christchurch. Um, so Dad had got a job as a uh, as a sort of a branch manager, ready to a finance company. Yep. He, he'd never got a degree in his life. He wound up running a medical school. He could just run things. He could get people to trust them. He, he had integrity. So did mum come to that. But he was running this finance company for a little while, this branch office. And he, one of the clients was a stockbroker and said, come into my firm, I'll make you a partner in my stockbroking firm. And he went and did that for about six months and thought, no, I don't want to just spend my life, you know, trying to ensure that rich people get richer and being rewarded for that. That's too narrow. And so he... Um, quit everything and was unemployed for six months waiting for something we didn't have a lot of money I remember it was anxious times but dad always had a certain level of confidence and um, <laughs> when I look back at it now you know he was, he was about 40 years old um, with four kids and um, t- he took a plunge into the into the abyss really and just confident that something would come up and it did and he wound up running the medical school what did your mum do so th- this is a really we're talking about the 60s and the 70s, and mum was Catholic. Dad, dad had sort of converted for the sake of propriety to get married. <laughs> and, um, and so in those days, uh, it was still the pill or any kind of um, contraception was deeply forbidden. A huge fights in the Catholic Church about contraception. And so mum, who was genuinely a sort of Catholic, and she was also tribally Catholic um, in her own way. You know, she, that was her community as well as a church. And she, um, she had a huge collision with that because she realized that she was going to keep popping out babies in rapid order. And that became a crisis of faith and other things. So she bust out of that. At the same time, she was breaking with the Catholic Church over contraception, really. She was also breaking with the societal expectations of women, yeah. and as many women did in the 60s. And mum was fearsomely bright, uh, and, and she felt quite bitter about being consigned to the only role available to her, really that of mother at home. 
Uh, she dusted off her nursing qualifications and did some shifts on that. But, you know, it was still expected that that would work around, uh, you know, being home to cook dinner every night, and that's the sacrifice that she made. Later on, as kids grew older, she went off and um, did some university training in social work and became a uh, ultimately the head of Catholic social welfare in Christchurch and and then, you know, had some sort of responsible inputs into changes in the law about adoption law reform and things like that. So she finally, sort of relatively late in life, got an opportunity to use her brain. But, you know, I'm, I'm always sensitive to uh, and sympathetic to feminist arguments about women being given every opportunity because of the experience of my mother. Yeah, I can imagine. What, what was school life like for you in New Zealand? Well, I went to a Catholic school briefly, which was horrendous. <laughs> there, it, was, it was run by nuns, the Sisters of Mercy, as a primary school teacher, and they just flogged the hell out of... There's the a strange schools. irony there, isn't it? The Sisters it of was, Mercy, yeah, they're flogging the crap out of you. And I look back at it now and I think, why were these women there? They, whatever reason they joined the nunnery, um, it probably wasn't to teach snotty five- and six-year-olds. And they were brought up in this deep, backward-looking culture of, of beating children, spare the rod, spoil the child, all that stuff. And um, mercifully, my, my parents saw, and the school, I think, saw that I was going to not fit in there. And uh, I wound up going through perfectly ordinary primary schools and then off to a, a big state uh, high school for boys, Christchurch Boys High School, which was fabulous. I, I wanted to be there. It was, you know, you had a lot of rough and tumble in the schoolyard type of stuff and I was a small kid but I was kind of alpha kid I, I like a little little dog you know really and yeah and uh, you know so I, I enjoyed it what did you excel at at school oh nothing exceptionally English was probably my best mark um, you know that that was it I I was possibly good at, at most things and sport you know sport I was keen but, but never I always thought, if I look back and I say, almost at any sport, I was just above average. Uh, you know, every kid in Christchurch played every sport, yeah. except for basketball. I was never going to make it a basketball. But um, I loved rugby, and I played that with a passion. That was that was the sport I really loved, and and um, uh, you know, and I really did enjoy that. And then I got into running as well because, and that that became a great comfort to me later when I was doing shift work and, and couldn't do team sports. You know, running was a great you know, solace to me. So, out of high school, into university? Yeah, no, never went to university. So, by the end of uh, high school, I was a bit of a drunk. I was a bad drunk. And at, at the end of high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? And like, a, how did that come about? Oh, well, we all, we all, well, my group of kids drank too much. I was enthusiastic at over drinking. And, um, and also there was a bit of dope around, so I was smoking a heave of dope. I wasn't, I suppose, in a perfect place, you know, it's hard to say. You know, Did your parents know what was going on? Oh, the parents knew I was drunk too much. <laughs> you know, but it's funny because now I'd be appalled if my children at that age were drinking as much as I was. But I think in those days it was considered to be part of the rites of passage. And so I wound up coming out of high school with moderate, with just bare passes. And um, I had enough to get into university because they were generous in New Zealand to let you get into university in those days but I didn't know what I wanted to do so I went and worked for a I was working as a hospital cleaner and uh, and I had a job in fact I descended down the line of hospital cleaners uh, to the point where I was cleaning the rat cages it was a teaching hospital and they had rats they'd do experiments on God help the poor things and um, 
And your so job was, was to clean the cages. And I cleaned the poo out of the rat cages. Wow, haven't you, haven't you gone up in the world? Haven't I kicked on? But one of the things, funny, nothing's ever wasted because when I was at school, I took myself off to a little, uh, not at school, it was a little neighborhood sort of playhouse, playgroup sort of thing, that kind of community neighborhood playhouse. And they had a youth something or other. And I went in there and, and, and did something with some other kids from the neighborhood. We wrote a play, we put it on. And then there's a, there was a high school play, and I got involved in in that, had a small part in this play. Literally, I, I was on stage for about 60 seconds, <laughs> all they could trust me with. And But out of that, one of the teachers said that there was a radio play coming up, and I should uh, audition for it, just as I was leaving school. So I did, and I got a part. In fact, I got the lead in it, which is remarkable to me. Um, and it was held at this radio station. Sometime after that, I got... Uh, I met the radio station news director and he thought I was applying for a job uh, as a reporter in the newsroom. And so he said, come in here and sit down. I'd gone into his, someone said he wanted to see me. I was confused because I didn't want to see him. He was a fearsome character. And I went up there, he said, come and sit down. And he said, "Um, uh, why do you want to be a journalist? And I looked at him and thought, my obvious answer was, I don't want to be a journalist. You know, why am I here? Um, but somehow or other, I realized it was some kind of job interview or something or other. I'd never even occurred to me to be a journalist. And I said, um, because it would be fun, the first thing I could think of. And he goes, fun. And I said, well, isn't that why you do it? And he kind of growled at me and asked me some more questions and then hired me. And so without ever in my life thinking of becoming a journalist, I walked out of the door going, oh, I start on Monday week and I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter. And I was 17. And uh, so I got a cadet reportership. And the bizarre thing is that's more than 40 years ago, it's the only job I've ever done. So you go from being in the radio station, you, you get take this job as a reporter at the age of 17. What were you reporting on? Or was it just local? Oh, very local. Yeah, it's yeah. a radio station in Christchurch. So we covered... Not only did we cover the council meetings, we covered the council committee meetings. Oh, hello. Um, yeah, big time. You know, at that time, we had a newsroom of 13 reporters in one private radio station to cover a town of 330,000 people. That seems quite excessive. Now, the Channel 10 newsroom would cover Sydney uh, with a number of reporters. Uh, would be, um, on a good day, you'd have 10. I think, and and to be honest, it's going to be less uh, because there's holidays, there's other kinds of things going on. So in reality, you've got far fewer numbers than that. And we're putting out a one and a half hour news bulletin every night. So there was money coming into radio stations, uh, commercial radio stations in New Zealand. And and I learned learned from those guys and women because, because, you know, everyone smoked. uh, Did you smoke back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the funny thing was, it stopped me drinking, <laughs> as in hard drinking, because I'd always have a shift. I'd always have to be on air. I'd have to be doing stuff. I was very quickly reading news and reporting from the field and doing things like that. And I still drank probably more than I should, but I wasn't, you know, I've, it, not many people can say this who are drinkers, but I've never been sick from alcohol since I left high school. Really? Yeah. And oh, no, I, 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 I don't know what to say to that. I mean, I wish I, wish I was in your position. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not. So. Yeah, it saved me from probably being an alcoholic. Because if I'd gone on to university, I probably would have continued drinking bloody hard all yeah. the way through university. 
and still not perform very well. So who knows? Uh, where, where did you go next? You were radio station. What happened yeah, next? Yeah, so I kicked around New Zealand. There were some big stories in New Zealand uh, that I got to cover. The Erebus disaster, the Mount Erebus disaster, when a plane flew into a mountain in Antarctica. The, the Springbok riots when the South African rugby team came there in, in 1981. Um, you know, th- there were some other issues that were rising about uh, Maori empower- empowerment and about the anti-nuclear movement, which built up to the point where uh, they, in the end, broke with the United States yep. in the ANZUS Treaty. So there were big things going on that were good to report. But by 22, I thought it was time to go. And um, I thought I'd go to London. My brother, my older brother, had moved to Perth. And he sent me a little job ad clipped out of the local newspaper. He just mailed it off to me. And I rang up this number. And a guy answered it in Perth. And I said, look, I'm applying for this job. And he says, okay, do you, from Auckland, wasn't expecting that. He said, um, do, you, uh, can you, do you read news there? I said, yes. He said, can, can, you, can you read me some? So I, I was calling from work, of course, so that the cost of the call went to the boss. Yeah. Um, so I said, yeah, hang on a minute. So I grabbed some things, started reading. And he said, well, start in a couple of weeks. And so I just scuttled. On another boat? Or did you fly? No, no, but no. But planes, were they, were they planes flying between those things. two then? I still remember flying over Sydney. Um, which I hadn't seen since we'd come through on the way to New Zealand on the ship as a child and gazing down at at this gleaming city in December of 1983 and thinking, wow, that is a city. And we we had two days or something in Sydney and then flew on to Perth, arriving just before Christmas and uh, hooked up with my brother and started work as a reporter in Australia. Who are you working for in Australia then? So I worked for a little radio station called 6KY. Believe it or not, the call sign was 6KY Nice and Easy. Wow. Which is kind of, when you think of it, odd. Yeah, um, it is. It's a little bit weird. But uh, it became, while I was there, it became part of two things. It was owned by the same people who owned Channel 9 in Perth and was in the Channel 9 complex in north in northern suburbs of Perth. And so I got to meet the Channel 9 people, some of whom were lifelong, became lifelong friends around the world. And then uh, it, it also meant that uh, during the time that I was there, that it became linked into the Macquarie radio network. And suddenly from being just a radio station that was doing its own thing in its own city, it was linked up to the big stations on the East Coast in those days, 2GB, 3AW. And suddenly uh, politicians wanted to get onto your radio network. So from being a kind of a, a, a wide-eyed sort of migrant in Perth, you know, suddenly I'm interviewing Paul Keating. Uh, what was that like? Oh, I tried Were you hardest. nervous? Well, I thought if there was a budget came out and Keating was selling the budget. And so he was going to do a hit into the Perth markets. And um, I don't know what it was, but they said, someone said, oh, the boss says, oh, Paul Keating's make, staff said he's going to be available for an interview, you know, tomorrow at, at whatever time. Uh, who wants to do it? And no one wanted to do it because he had such a ferocious reputation and because, you know, we had a pretty sleepy life. No one was actually reading the fine detail of the budget. And so I said, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do it. So I swatted up what I could out of the budget and then and then threw my curliest and best at him the next day and he swatted me off like a fly, of course. But I did enjoyed you, it. Did and you was, interview him again? I don't know that I ever did because he came to prime ministership. I must have done somewhere, but... Uh, he came to the Prime Ministership when I'd gone to London by that stage, and uh, for nine. And so I, I, I didn't spend a lot of time. It had more to do with Hawke through the 80s. Um, 
so you're in Perth. You've you've, you've interviewed uh, Mr. Keating. Yeah, and Howard and others who were romping around during the election there at '84. I was only there for just over a year, and then I, I thought Perth's a bit dull for me, with all respect to people in Perth. And so I thought I'd try for a job in Sydney, and they didn't have one within the Macquarie Network. They didn't have one, but I got a phone call from the guy in Melbourne at Three AW, and he said, "Would you come consider coming to Melbourne?" And I said, uh, "You bet." And so again, I'm on the bus across the Nullarbor. <laughs> 25 years old um, and by that stage I had eight years up as a radio reporter at 25 and I started to get an idea about what I was doing Wow so you, you hit Melbourne yeah 3AW great city yeah what was the highlight of your time in Melbourne and who do, so 3AW was that the only place you worked for in Victoria no I, I worked uh, that's when I, br- I started in TV but it, 3AW was fantastic Hinch was at the height of his powers uh, you know huge audience um, How did you get on with him? I got on with him fine. I yep. still do to this day. You know, I mean, he's done things which I think are just, are, you just make you shake your head. Yeah. But, you know. So you can still catch up with him now for a coffee? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, if, uh, yeah, I'll catch up and have a drink with him. Really? Yeah, although he doesn't, well, he kind of drinks. He'll have a little drink, he'll do whatever. He's, he's, he, my, he's my, he, that he, doesn't say anything about me, by the way. Hitch will catch up with anyone and have a drink no, with No, no, I get that. But, um, he was one of those defining people on, on our networks. He, he was, just, in a way, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. yeah. He just, for, for someone who grew up, my parents always listened and watched Darren Hinch because yeah. he was one of these people that was controversial. Yes, yeah, he and certainly I was. I think that. that's what he built his brand on. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he was a, also, he was another kid from New Zealand. He'd left school even earlier than I had. Oh, I didn't realise that. started at 16 or something. Wow. So, um, yeah, Hinch is a talent. But, so, the, the main thing that happened there for me was that there was the first coup in Fiji. And only because I was the only person in the newsroom who could get home and grab a passport and get to the airport in time to make a flight to Fiji, uh, I wound up carrying the network's coverage across Australia, uh, at least in the first days of the Fiji coup in 1987. And that was my first experience of balaclavered soldiers in the street with M16s, the parliament shut down, the members of parliament, including the prime minister, carted off. No one initially knew where. You know, the rumours that they'd been shot and executed and this sort of stuff. Were you wearing vests at this no, point? God, or was no. just in your normal... Yeah, just, uh, you know. And uh, I got arrested in the middle of the night and carted out and um, others were being carted out and, and being subjected to mock executions and so on. It was tense. And the first, in a sense, the first taste of a big, big world big dangerous world and uh what was that like for you though because i mean you're only you're still in your 20s oh yeah and completely untrained for it really uh you know i lived in benign worlds new zealand australia whatever happens even you know the the worst i'd seen up to that time had probably been the riots the springbok riots in new zealand Uh, um and this was a definitely at another level so the other thing i noticed was that you couldn't sleep because you're feeding a 24-hour news service so you're getting maybe a couple of hours of sleep you're out in the tropical heat, you're racing around, you're being chased around by soldiers and other goons. A couple of times I wound up in cells. And I realised that there's a point where your head starts to go a little bit screwy. I think fatigue more than any other stress is, is one of the great stresses, just not sleeping for yeah. days. Um, and when I came back from that and dusted myself down, one of the things that happened there is that there were photographers and journalists who came in from things like Time magazine and I'd go and have a chat with them and I realized that this was just a small event for them out of hundreds of 
uprising, coups, wars and displacements that they covered all the time. And I realized for the first time what it might be to be a someone who traveled constantly looking at these pressure points in the world. And that was an insight that such people really existed. I could see them, I could talk to them. Whereas otherwise I was a suburban reporter in Melbourne, fundamentally, who'd, who'd lucked into one big sort of international story and probably the only one in my life. And so that changed my thinking as well. I thought, this is the most testing arena and I've always loved to, to be tested. And I thought, how do I get back and how do I prepare myself to do better? Uh, I think people said I did fine, but, you know, to, to really, it, it's about like training for a mountain climb. You, you, you have to recognize that it's going to contain real challenges to everything you've got. And you have to prepare yourself, not just physically, but in every other way you can think of. I did an outward bound course, for example, for a month up in the, up in the bush west of Canberra. And um, again, just to train myself on exhaustion, on finding resilience. I, I was trying to train myself so that if other opportunities came to go around the world and go to bad and difficult places, I'd be ready for it. Yeah. What was your next big break? So I, I got into TV. I uh, started at seven because they were desperate to hire people uh, that <laughs> had ratings difficulties. So I got a job at seven. Uh, and that was just for one year. It was actually on the Hinch show when he first started. And that didn't fit. And so I wasn't that kind of journo myself. What was the big story while you were at Seven Line? Uh, well, probably there was a Wall Street killings, but I wasn't involved in doing that. I, 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 what, what happened to me was I went and covered a flood down near Geelong, and it caught the eye of the Channel 9 news director, the uh, ferocious and legendary John Sorrell. And so I got a phone call from the chief of staff at 9, saying the boss wants to meet you for lunch and I only had a one-year contract with seven I said righto he said where do I meet he said named a hotel in Richmond and Victoria I went to the hotel the boss the legendary John Sorrell was busy he was not he was an alcoholic a sort of functioning alcoholic and he was busy inhaling his daily quota of beers and um and and I couldn't keep up. I you know I drank one down in the time he did, it and I tried on it, and that was it. And he said, yeah, "Don't you drink?" And I went, uh. so so he lost interest in me. And I thought, well, I don't know what this is about. We haven't even talked about a job. What's going on? And so as I walked out, the chief of staff wandered in, and I said, um, "I might head off now." Uh, so so what, what's what's going on? And he goes, "Oh, I don't know." Um, so I went up to Sorrell and I said to him. Uh, are you looking? Have you got a short list or have you? What are you? You know what, what's happening here? And he goes, "No, I reckon I'll hire you." That, that was, was it. That was, that was the interview. That, your initiation into well, the Channel Nine. No, he hadn't asked me a damn thing, and he, and then he, he paused for a second. He looked at me and says, "What are you making over there?" And I told him, and he goes, "You don't want any more than that, do you?" And I said, "No, I don't actually." And he goes, huh? and then when I went, you back didn't to inflate the chief, it slightly. No. No, well, I didn't because I didn't care. I was well paid at seven, and um, and I wanted to go to nine. Nine was definitely the the champion of the world in those days, unquestionably, and and certainly in Melbourne. And that they, they were they were the best operators in the business, and I was delighted to go and join them. So you're at Channel Nine, and, and Sorrell was amazing to me. He has got a terrible reputation as a bully, and all kinds of things have come out. But he was good to you. But he was good to me. He sent me. He put us. He, he had influence within the network. And when a job came up in London, only three years later, you know, I was so new to TV. And TV takes a while to 
to fit on your shoulders as an old coat. And he backed me to go to the London Bureau as the, Lon as the network London correspondent, covering everything from Cape Town to Russia. And so suddenly I was in this environment where I was getting my dream. I was covering. How old are you now wars. when you go to London? Oh, 30. Wow. And, uh, and I'd started climbing and I went there via Nepal and climbed a mountain with a friend of mine and, and I was fit and I was dealing with issues of how to manage fear and stress, anxiety, cold, heat, whatever it is. And I felt as if I was preparing myself. I traveled around Europe with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'd fl flown over there with my then partner and we'd driven around through these, these Soviet bloc areas that were all sort of crumbling. And, and all of it was an education and a preparation. And then, I, and then Sir Earl Blessham sent me off to London where I worked with the great Robert Penfold, a fabulous, fabulous journo and great teacher. And, uh, and I started to really learn what it was to be a foreign correspondent. What was the, uh, what was the tenure in, in London like though? I mean, you talk about, you know, that's where you really cut your teeth mm. in, in TV. Um, well, it was, it was cutting, I already knew, I was starting to know how to do the, t the, the tools of TV, but it's really about how to go into, say, Somalia in the middle of a war zone and get a story out, how to go to, you know, the, uh, the townships of South Africa in the middle of what was then still apartheid conflict zones, war zones, desperately dangerous places still, people get killed every day, uh, you know, and escaping by the skin of your teeth from some of these things and learning how to file stories and, and stay alive and try and keep your crew alive, uh, going into see the Rwanda genocide, you know, the, I didn't get into Rwanda, I got to the border, <clears throat> in the Tanzanian border where the refugees were coming across the border, the river was full of these bodies of the dead, literally the river flowing through there which formed the border was just 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 packed with bodies flowing that's into the, surely that's quite confronting though oh it's confronting it's, no question it's confronting did you ever say no to a job Some, the boss comes and says right Hugh I, I need you to go here and you just turn up and say no I can't do no, that no I never have the only, the only time I, I did it was I was in Iraq later working for CNN and uh, I'd got ambushed uh, with a, a, an American patrol we, we ran into an ambush and we were very lucky to get out of that and I was... How did you get out of it? Well, the, the, through the skill of the American soldiers, basically. And then we, we sort of got back and filed that story. And then they said, oh, look, all these colonels and generals would constantly be after CNN saying, come and see what we're doing up in this sector. Come on, see in this sector. And there was a very active sector at one stage. And they were saying, come up, you know, tomorrow to our place, Bakuba it was, a northeast um, of Baghdad. And I just said, look, I'm just going to take a day. That's the only time I said no. And, uh, you know, but you are entitled to say no. Yeah, no, and, I, I understand. I guess from, from, a, from a budding professional, you're less likely to say no because you don't want that to be, then be a, uh, a, a hurdle for later on. No, I think that's right. I think no. if, you're, if you're saying no because you've made a, a, a risk assessment and you can justify the risk assessment, I think you're entitled to say no because basically... Um, you want to you stay know, alive. You, well, you can say, look, I'm just, uh, my nerves are a bit shot now because of things that have happened in the last few days. And I've certainly, I've been in the field with um, uh, colleagues where there's been an event and, you know, it gets a bit crazier and there's stuff going on. And, uh, and certainly I had one case with, a, I've worked with enough cameramen, there's no way anyone could be identified with this particular cameraman said, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm, you know, and you could see he was just frightened, terrified. And I said, 
there's a safe place. You're in, you've got some cover over there. Sit there. Just take it easy. We'll get through this thing that we're doing. Um, we'll, we'll get out of here. And I called up, and it was all very quiet. He was able to go back, continue his career, and that we flew in a replacement. And there was no blame attached. No, no, no kind of. And did you work with that cameraman again? Oh yeah, yeah, but in, but not in war zones. He but it was he, just in that moment in time. It was just a bit too much. Yeah, and I think some people they want it, or they they, you know, maybe that was one of the advantages of the of the training I'd done in terms of managing fear. Yeah. A lot of climbing is about managing fear. And what I was doing when I was climbing, part of it was physical fitness, but it was about managing fear, operating in a condition where your proper rational assessment is that you're in a dangerous situation. And then you've got to manage your way out of that through, and if it's climbing or it's something else, how are you going to do it? But if, you, if you're not thinking that, the idea of going to a war zone or something, you want the badge on your chest, and then you get there and suddenly there are, you know, often you've got these sort of militias running around the place with guns capable of anything. And you suddenly realize, I don't want to be here. So yeah. that's so that's fine. And if you know that, that's good. Well, speaking of being here, we've just arrived at French's Forest where you're going to drop off your household goods. Yes. And uh, we'll, then con- yeah, we'll then continue this once we've done that. So we'll take a slight pause in the in the conversation. I'm, I, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm absolutely loving it, mate. So uh, let's get in front here. Is this must be the driveway just here, mates? There's number. That's 38. We're looking for 34. There he is. There he is. So let's just get up here a little bit. Let's look at a pretty quiet road. I'll pull up here, and I'll let you do your thing. Beautiful. Thanks, buddy. Right. Uh, do me to give you a hammer. No, 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 right. She's right. Give it a shot. Oh, there goes Hugh. And what an awesome story so far. Dropping off at the, the uh, new station after this. Full day of uh, current affairs. This trip from here is another 40 minutes. Rightio. Of uh, Saunders Street, Piermont. That's the one. That's the one. I've got it in there ready for us. Beautiful. So, parcels delivered. Parcels delivered. We're on our way. So, happy days. The question I was going to ask just before you jumped out, was there ever a story that got you emotional to the point where you just, it was hard to continue and you had to take a moment to recompose and, and, and go back into it or you just found it really too difficult to do? Uh, it's, yeah, look, I mean, the Port Arthur Massacre, uh, I, I've only wept twice when writing a story and once was a, once was a Port Arthur Massacre. And the other one, oddly enough, was I went with these World War One diggers, the last remaining surviving Australian diggers, went back to the Western Front in uh, 1990, 75 years on from uh, 1918, so that makes it 1993. And they went round the Western Front and I got to know those old diggers. Average age was, I think, 96 or 97. And realizing that by the end, towards the end of that trip, many of them, you, you, you're watching them fade before your eyes and, and you realize that link to those men in the trenches. And I wrote a piece to try to capture that and, and I found that very emotional. Port Arthur, I think, was well, a, a tragedy now. And, and because of the, you know, I mean, it's a tragedy on any level, but the, his pursuit and killing of small children is just, is just, uh, just still, still unspeakable. Yeah, I mean, for those people that don't know, um, you know, the ones that are overseas especially, most people in Australia would know about Port Arthur, especially the older, you know, people of, of our generation. But for the younger ones that don't, it was a tragedy in Tasmania, 
where uh, Martin Bryant yeah. uh, took it upon himself to create as much tragedy and havoc as you could ever see. He killed 35 people on a single day. It was unbelievable. He shot 53. Um, and um, It was unrelenting though, wasn't it? Oh, look, it's horrible. It's, yeah. it's, there's nothing much to be gained from even talking about no, it, except that it shut down, you know, brought in some firearms reform. We haven't had a gun massacre, certainly on that kind of scale, a random gun massacre since. That's probably has at least a little to do with some form of luck, but, but um, you certainly can't rule it out. And, you know, when you look at the Christchurch Mosque massacre, which was conducted by an Australian, you know, part of the reason it seems as though why he went to New Zealand was because they had looser gun laws. So Port Arthur was definitely one that was emotional. And the other one which has had a profound effect on me was I went to um, South Sudan during the Civil War in 1998 uh, to cover a uh, what was then, as part of the Civil War, a famine. Lots of people were dying. And I went with a good friend of mine, Steve Levitt, a cameraman, who had great contacts in Africa. And we, we, we went into these villages and feeding stations where there were just people just children again just dying in the dust and children dying at your feet it's horrible just the hopelessness in there the fact that these young lives could be snuffed out through because of wars and causes that they couldn't have any means of comprehending and yet they were absolutely at the bottom end of power and I went back to Sudan the following year South Sudan and uh, bought slaves 876 slaves uh, somewhat controversially, some felt, but we were proving that there was a slave trade that was functioning again as a as part of the war. And consequently, I've I've definitely I've made some fabulous friendships in the South Sydney's community in Australia, and they've been really powerful to me. I kind of felt I did a lot of work in Africa, and, I, and at first I found it irredeemably depressing. And then after a while, I remember being in Uganda once doing a story in the Lord's Resistance Army about this time, late 90s. And I was meeting people who were determined and optimistic. And I thought, I'm being white, man, privileged, neurotic on these people's behalf. Yeah. It is completely appalling on any measure, on any objective measure. But there are people here who have not given up. And if they've not given up, it's, it is a pathetic indulgence on my part to get all depressed on their part. I need to not give up with them. And so I've, always, I've felt since then that the important things I've learned about what it is to be human, I really do feel. I learned in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, the best and the worst of it. It's like the Old Testament version of who we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all blood, swords and fire. Uh, I learned in those places, but also what's strong and enduring about us. And uh, so I've, I, I do feel as if my teachers in many ways have been um, uh, the men and women of, of particularly South Sudan, I think, and, and northern Uganda and other parts of the world. Who's a mentor to you? Well, they change over time. Um, so in, in some ways, a mentor, how do you define it? Someone who teaches you things and... You know, you imbibe and learn from people, you know, back in radio. Robert Penfold is peerless, and he's, you know, he's lifted the quality of the work of people like, you know, so many people have gone through Michael Usher and uh, Mark Burroughs and Mark Ferguson, and these people are sort of regulars on our TV screens. 
you know, if they're honest, would all give credit to Penfold um, for the influence that he had because he was a gentleman and a, and a man of the highest ethical value and could teach you or at least encourage you and, and reinforce your belief that you can be uh, a reporter in commercial media and answer uh, only to ethical um, standards. Standards, yeah. That you, you that there need be no bending. In fact, there must be no bending of ethical standards. And yet, you'll still do good work. In fact, the best work. So Penfold was enormously influential in just affirming and giving ground to that um, that sense of how you work. Um, but I find nowadays I learn from my kids. We'll get to your kids in a minute. Yeah. Because um, they obviously hold a an immense part of your life, and as does as does Mary, your beautiful wife. Uh, and obviously, there's been some some trials and tribulations that you've gone through in the last little while with uh, with Mary's health. And um, I actually mentioned Mary yesterday to one of my passengers who was telling me about her struggles with uh, with cancer, and she came through. And I mentioned Mary as having her having had her lunch on the weekend with her girlfriends. Yeah, that's to true. Celebrate. And yeah, yeah. So she was diagnosed last November, and uh, and initially it seemed to be very, very early and very small. And then it turned out, in fact, on close examination, she had two very aggressive breast cancers, and one of them was one of them was well established. And so, you know, she had to endure, oh, I think, it's three major operations. And then because the cancers had different, I think they call it histology. They uh, they needed two different forms of chemo. One of which was very aggressive very hard they don't do it on older patients because this, the potential for killing them is not insignificant but Mary being at the time 44 and had a birthday 45 uh, they gave it to her she came through that um, you know Dennis then when she just completed that she had to then start on the next round uh, at one stage the oncologist was saying they were so concerned about coronavirus that they thought maybe she wouldn't go with the second round because she had no immune system. She was getting laid flat by... A you know, kid would have a sniffle and Mary would be in emergency. And, uh, you know, Mary has been amazingly strong, ferociously strong. I think too strong in some ways because... That, that's her personality, though. It is, to punch on through. Um, you know, sometimes I, I'm reminded of the old story about how a dog deals with injury. Uh, you know, an injured dog um, goes and lies down on their bed wherever they sleep and doesn't do anything for a while you know and then or a sick one and then eventually gets up and gets going again dogs don't give themselves pep talks about how they've got to punch through and maintain the same work rate and doing all this sort of stuff yeah and i sometimes think that um but that's that is as you say mary's personality she is take no prisoners uh we'll get to mary in a second so because i'm sure obviously we'll cross paths with how you met mary uh as, as part of your journey uh, you're in London. When do you leave London? When do you come back home? So I came back to London uh, because I I didn't want to be away. From, I, they said to me in London, "We like what you're doing. You can stay there as long as you like." And I thought, fantastic. That's kind of gratific. It's kind of endorsement of my work because you're always anxious about whether you're good enough. And um, so for about two weeks, I felt high on that. And then I thought, well, if I do this, I'll I've got a British passport from birth. I was born British. I'll wind up when they do call me home. Um, I'll have, I'll be out of touch with Australia, and then I'll be living in England. And I thought it was one again one of those things where I thought I thought this before I went to London. I really am Australian, and it, you know, 
it fits with me so well. And, and I love Australia above everything else. So I negotiated a, a job back in Australia. And I'm just a reporter's reporter. I'm just a newsman. I'm not a, I, I, I've done long-form journalism in all forms and really enjoyed it. Yep. But you can stray in commercial current affairs into areas where you might be asked to do something which is, would not be comfortable with my ethics. Whereas as a newsman, I could control that completely. And so I came back and was negotiating myself a job essentially as a sort of roving reporter. Working for? Working for Nine, still okay. with Nine. Nine was fantastic to me. And, and so from there, I was able to travel around the country, travel overseas, back to Africa, around the Pacific, covering uh, all kinds of you know, stories. And then I realized that I was going to have to do some more studio work, get studio skills up to sustain my career in the long term. So I started reading the news at Channel 9 on the late news, Nightline, which is a great news program. It was the most watched news bulletin in Australia, single news bulletin in Australia, because the six o'clock news <laughs> had big audiences, but each was a state news. Yeah. Whereas the Nightline was a national bulletin, was actually had more eyeballs than any other news bulletin in Australia. It was a great privilege to, to present it back in those days. And, um, and then if a big story happened, I'd jump on a plane and go there and cover it. So it's a perfect job for me. Now, is Mary in the scene? No, I met Mary. Um, I, I decided... <laughs> I'd actually met someone before Mary, long before I knew Mary. And um, my first marriage had broken up, but I met Kumi, uh, who was born in Melbourne, half Japanese. And then she wanted to go and live in Asia. Really, she wanted to live in Japan. Uh, she wanted to get in touch with that side of herself. She said, I want to look up, look down the street and see nothing but black hair. And I wasn't close to that as an idea, but I looked around and there were no jobs in Japan that interested me. It's really a finance job. The only job doing it was maybe ABC as a Japan correspondent, uh, it seemed to me. But CNN had opened a conversation a few years beforehand. It just hadn't worked out. So we went away to Paris for a few weeks and uh, had a chat about what we were going to do. And I thought, bugger it, let's try this out. So I rang up CNN from Paris and said, look, I'm, I'm in Paris I'm flying back to Australia. I'm coming back down through Denver, uh, through Atlanta, where CNN headquarters was. How about I pop in and have a chat? And I knew that my old friend Stan Grant worked in Hong Kong and was going to the Beijing bureau. He wanted to go in to, into further deeper into China, and so there was a job going there. So I had I had that information up my sleeve. So I sort of I flew out of Paris into Atlanta, spent a couple of days with them. Uh, they gave me a job straight away, almost straight away. They said, where do you want to go? And I said, well, I'd like to be in Hong Kong because that suited Kumi. But also I wanted to get really in touch with the China story. And so I walked out with that <laughs> job at CNN. And as Have an you ever really CNN interviewed for a job? No, it doesn't, doesn't sound like, like No, no, no. If I think if I did, I'd probably fail. But, <laughs> and, then, and then I flew back to Paris and continued my holiday. And then we came back to Australia and I would never have left Channel 9 for another network because I, I was loyal to 9 and 9 had been fabulous to me, but to go to CNN was too big an opportunity to miss. And they were okay with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were great, actually. David Gingell said, tried to recontract me to come back, you know, but, but we both knew that life was going to move on in some ways. And so I arrived in, in Hong Kong and before I even started work, I'd literally been there a few days, this tsunami happened. And... Um, an Indian Ocean tsunami, and I put up my hand and said, is there anything I can do to help? And they said, get on a plane. And so I actually was reporting for CNN before I was on the payroll. I was anchoring out of Sri Lanka. 
hours at a time, ad-libbing, throwing between various reporters around the region. Fabulous network of reporters. And uh, from a busted-down hotel on the beach, it was getting increasingly smelly. It was, it was, you know, the, you know, thirty thousand people died in Sri Lanka just along that coastline. It was a disaster in Sri Lankan terms. So, did you also cover nine eleven? No, I was actually in Nauru because the Tampa thing had happened, and uh, they were in the business of getting those refugees, and they'd taken onto a military ship, a naval ship, and they were shipping them off to Nauru. So that was the biggest story at the time, and I was, I was on Nauru, and nine eleven happened. And, there it was. In some regards, maybe not being at 9-11 was not, not a bad thing. Oh, look, you know, you know, it's, it, it, the stories, it's, those things are not about me. So, um, no, I, I guess in a sense, though, that, you know, you look at some of the stories you've covered and, um, I mean, for me, for, the, for these days, 9 is obviously the one that's quite prominent. Well, 9-11 sticks in people's minds because they saw it on television and there were dreadful things happen, etc. And it was appalling attack. People died in horrible ways. Um, Many of them died very quickly, but others were left to jump, burning buildings. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And, you know, but it was less than... We have to remember this. And I don't make light of 9-11 at all, but it was less than 3,000 people. And when you consider of the, you know, the death toll from the wars post-9-11, that essentially flow-ons from 9-11, you know, we're talking about you know, on some many hundreds of thousands in Iraq, Afghanistan, the wars subsequent to that, um, you know, two million people died in South Sudan. Uh, you know, so 9-11 sticks in people's minds because it was televised. That was al-Qaeda's plan. And it was historically important. There's no question about that. The suffering is always absolute for the person who's doing the suffering. But in perspective over the time that's of what's going on. There have been a lot of people suffering in all kinds of horrible ways. It's hard to qualify those numbers, though, isn't it? Like when you talk about two million people in Sudan, it's just... Yeah, like... it's, it, well, in, in many ways, you can't comprehend that. And when, and when you consider that, yeah, look, I mean, awful things happen. And trying to tell that and not put people off, keeping them listening, understanding how it works, understanding how things are in, interconnected, uh, that's, you know, that's a challenge. I well, mean, I, I went to a... The Sichuan earthquake in China. Very few people remember the Sichuan earthquake in China, but 100,000 people died. And many of those were school children because it happened during the day and they were at their schools. And in much of these parts of Western China where it was hit, the school is the biggest building. And the buildings were often bigger than they were strong, if you know what I mean. And they would come down and they killed the children. And in a country with a one-child policy, in an instant, your next generation's gone. And the and the parents left, particularly those too old to have more children. Um, it, it's catastrophic. It's the end of it's the end of life as far as they're concerned. As a newsreader, what's the hardest thing for you to do? You said it's hard. You got, you got to make sure you engage the the audience and keep them interested in what you're talking about. Well, as a newsreader, I've, I've got to say, I, I, I probably I don't take newsreading seriously enough. To me, it's in some ways the least interesting part of the job. I like news reading bulletins where there's rolling news or where there's interviews and there's stuff where you're intellectually engaged with that stuff. The rest of it is essentially um, reading clearly so people can understand what you're talking about. It's not technically extremely difficult to do. As I say, anyone who reads a bedtime story to their eight-year-old can read the news. And by and large, that's true. So people will then 
it, it then becomes a matter of marketing. Uh, who do people trust and rely on to deliver them their news? And that becomes a matter of familiarity. So newsreaders become part of the furniture because they become part of the furniture. Um, but, you know, it's, and definitely there are better newsreaders than others. There are people who bring a warmth and a gravitas to it. I, I don't unenjoy it. I enjoy doing it. But um, I find if I'm doing it for too long without... I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, I'm, a, I'm curious about things... And newsreaders, by and large, don't have an opportunity to express that. Some of them don't have it. Some of them do. Yeah. Uh, but I'm basically, as I, I see myself, as a gumshoe reporter, a leather a leather reporter, out there flogging the leather and and, and uh, finding out what's going on and and trying to stay across what's changing. You mentioned uh, you're a, a writer. Uh, you also recently wrote was it a forward? The, the book what was the novel from was it Deng so the, yeah so I wrote a forward for I've written my, uh, my own book um, and what's that called Minefields so that came out a couple of years ago that actually came out of that so Deng Adut who's one of my friends who emerged out of my experiences in South Sudan the New South Wales Australian of the Year from a couple of years ago extraordinary story I you know uh, I, I should I should recommend my own book but I'd much rather you read Deng's book it's called uh, Songs of a War Boy and, um, which, and was, which you recommended to me and yes. I, it was unbelievable yeah a great book and I've also I have yours I just haven't had the chance to read it yeah so probably given you a short form here but um, so they, the, the publishers asked me to write a, um, a preface to that which I did and they uh, and then they came after me and said right we want your book and so I said okay maybe it's time and I wrote it my book because I really wanted my kids to have some sense of who I was because I'm an older dad and I'll grow up and, it's some, and I think my dad when he retired wrote a book of an autobiography really just for publication for the family um, self-published and I found by because he was my dad's very frank and honest about his childhood and other things and so suddenly a whole bunch of things becomes clear about your own life and your own child your own upbringing and I really recommend whether you feel you're a writer or you're not and if, if you're a, a parent write your own story because that's a gift to your uh, kids I actually did the same thing I, I started writing my own book called Will I Make It as a Dad yeah and that was based on the fact that my childhood wasn't the childhood that my children lead now do you, do you want to tell us about that well it, we, we probably don't have a lot of time but it's, essentially it's it's more so about me before Marley was born my eldest um, in 2008 I started writing it thinking, would I replicate the actions of my parents, especially my father, in being a father to my daughter? Because he wasn't a nice man. Not, not the nicest man. And it wasn't through, you know, it was just, just the way that he, you know, it's the way that he brought children up because I was adopted. So, you know, him not, not getting me till I was six and my brother till he was four, it was just the way that he, he thought was the right thing to do. So, unfortunately for me, it wasn't the best way. But and vicariously, I now lead and live my childhood through my children. So, will I make it as a dad? Was just about that, and how I got to be a father. And I think I've done absolutely everything opposite to what happened to me. And I think my kids are a, a great testament to that. So, yeah, you, you're a great dad, and I appreciate that. Maybe so, what we could do, I, could, I wanted to sign you up to a contract here. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I can drive you round 
for well, maybe, 45 minutes maybe, and ask you questions. Maybe we could do that. Yeah, let's do that. Mate, let's do that. Let's do that. We'll, we'll, we'll take that as a as a sidebar to our conversation. Yeah, no, I would like to do that. All right, well, let's do that, Hugh. Let's do that. So let's get back to you, though, because we, we're, we're, we're near where we need to drop you off. I might have to do a couple laps of the block. What time do you have to be in the, in the newsroom? Oh, anytime. Okay, yeah. we've got a little bit more time. Um, you're in Hong Kong. How long are you in Hong Kong for? So I was there for about five years. Uh, my relationship with Kumi didn't last. Uh, I was, and, and I attach no blame to Kumi for that. I was, CNN is a wonderful place to work, but they don't leave you much room for anything else. We had a, an extraordinary daughter together, who we still obviously have. Um, and um, she was born in, in Hong Kong. And so that relationship ended. And uh, so I was feeling a little, you know, bruised from that. I'm very much focused on Coco, my daughter. And then sometime later, Mary came to work at CNN and actually got the desk opposite mine. And um, and I was struck by, first of all, how lovely she looked. <laughs> of course. You know, as corny as it is, uh, you know, I saw how lovely her eyes were when she smiled. It's corny as, as, as you like. And we would socialize a bit for about six months. We'd socialize in groups and never, never individually. And during that time, I fell helplessly in love with her. I just, you know, but I wasn't much of a, you know, solo dad at that stage. And I'm, um, you know, I was older. And finally... Um, you got the gumption? Well, yes. And, uh, well, in fact, I didn't because it was an awkward situation. Yeah. Um, We'll because I, because we, we, we were work colleagues and um, and I thought I can't put her in a difficult situation so you know we were seeing a bit of each other and we'd catch up for a beer and we'd start you know occasionally do that together her friends her friends laughed at her that I was her fake boyfriend her FB <laughs> but um, one night I just said to her look what am I to you and she disputes this but there was a little panicked shiny look in her eye and I, I realised that I'd become something to her and and I more or less you know blurted a proposal to her at that very moment is that right and uh, you know I <laughs> you know I, she needed to know I wasn't flippant about it and it was a huge ask for her she was taking on you know Mary makes the point quietly that we've never had a holiday together and it's true without without a child so when, because when you, had she, oh, we can't really do it now can you but is that on the cards? It gets harder and harder. Well, I mean, I hope so. But, but it is, you know, we've, got, we've now got three kids. Um, and I realised that. I should have cared more, been more attuned to that at the time. We didn't have a normal thing. I thought it was fabulous. To me, it was the perfect world. I had my Coco, who I adored. We went, you know, went travelling around India. We went to holidays in Boracay. We went to places that were precious to Mary. So... Um, but I guess it's the and, little and we, thing like that that you just don't you don't see, do you? you yeah, that she 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 would have liked, I think, a, a relationship with someone who was going to we would travel together and do things and ignore kids, and she's done such an amazing job, you know, effectively raising Coco uh, with me, and and um, and then Jacob and, and Holly, tremendous, and then we've had our own two kids, yeah, and um, you know, at the heart of everything is Mary's strength. What's the most attractive thing apart from that about Mary? Obviously, the eyes are what caught you first. She's a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman. She's intellectually powerful. I'll just turn around. Her parents are both 
you know, super bright. Father left school at 15, wound up with a PhD in linguistics. Um, you know, mother was a farm girl from New Zealand who wound up teaching science at a prestigious school, head of the science thing. There, there, there's obviously good genes there for brains, and you can see that in Mary. I love her determination to do what she wants to. See, like, when I met her, she wasn't a photographer. But she said, I want to become a photographer. Now, it's one thing to take photographs. We all take photographs. But it's nothing to become a photographer. It's a very demanding discipline to learn um, how to do that at a professional level. Well, she does it at a professional level. She's hired as a photographer. She takes photographs. On top of all her journalistic work, uh, she's, she's hired by the ABC purely as a photographer. And, you know, she, people buy her photographs. Um, she has a particular eye. So there are certain things that she will take that other I would never think of taking. Yeah. And um, so she's, you know, so she will set out. It's like someone turning up and saying, I'm going to learn piano to recital level. And they've never played the piano. And yet she'll go ahead and do it. So, so I think that's that sort of strength, strength about it. Um, we, we've got to recover from the cancer year. You know, we, we, there's still more to come. And, um, and I hope we get a chance to sit down somewhere in this COVID age and put our feet in the sand and just review what we've done over the time that we've known each other, 13 years now, and just say, look, we've, we, we have done okay, we're doing okay. I think, well, you, I think you've both done exceptionally well. But sometimes in the middle of it, you feel, you know, everyone's caught up in this. We just, you're just getting through the demands of that day. So I, I, I hope she gets a sense of how she's, um, how extraordinary she is, and how I see her as that. You mentioned earlier your your kids and the inspiration that they are. You take, you know, inspiration from them. They're all, I mean, Holly's a very good friend of Jasmine's. Yeah. Jacob's just one. He's he's a one of a kind. That lad. He he's a, he's a. He's a cracking boy. He is. He's, he's eccentric. He's sweet-natured boy. He has a big temper, but sweet-natured boy who who is absolutely interested, astonishingly interested in the things that interest him and completely uninterested in anything else. Yeah. And, you know, he taught himself to read fluently at four. By the time he arrived at kindergarten at school, he won the spelling bee uh, over much older kids. Um, <clears throat> and then has no interest in reading books unless they're data-driven. You know, so he, novels, Harry Potter, no interest. Plotting, no. Character development, couldn't care less. <laughs> but give him the rugby league, uh, you know, season guide, and he will remember, uh, he will read in quite seriously and then remember the heights and weights of every player playing in the NRL because it's entertaining to remember it, to his mind. So, you know, the kids, Coco is a great friend of mine. You know, I love her so much because I feel as if... You know, we're bonded by the time that we were together and on our own. And, uh, you know, the help, thank heaven, of a Filipino nanny when I had to get up and go to work when I was in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, so life is fleeting. Childhood is fleeting. It doesn't feel like it on a Tuesday afternoon, but it is fleeting. And so it's, so that business of trying... I would love to be as good a father. I've had the opposite experience. My father had no... It was like you had no father figure really in his life, yeah. of any value, and became a fantastic father. I inherited a fantastic father. I suspect I'm not anywhere near as good a father 
um, and, and that's not false modesty um, in return. But I look at my kids and what they're doing and I, you just want to be close to them and, and hug them and see them through. And, you know, Aldous Huxley, towards the end of his life, basically someone said to him, what's the most important thing people need to know about life or something? And he was a kind of moral philosopher and novelist, brilliant in so many ways. And he just said, oh, I, th I think people could be just a little kinder to each other. It's a strange thing. But it's kindness is really what we... As you get older, the more you realize that those little things that you brush past in your youth are actually the heart of everything. Kindness, whether it's compassion, what you know, that, that's the path to, to anything worthwhile. Yeah, it's, I, I, I look at where I am now and, you know, the last few years have been a bit tough, but, um, you know, this year has been tough with COVID, as you said, but um, separating from someone who's the mother of your children... You know, I was, I was, that, that was the greatest hurdle for me in my whole life is to not have my children there every day. Yeah. And it's only now that, you know, I, I get, I get to go now and go and go and see my youngest daughter. And I still speak to my eldest daughter in, in the week when she's with her mum. I see them on a Monday and a Friday and talk to her every day, every other day on, on text. And it's a lot easier now because as they get older, they're more self-sufficient anyway. Yes. So even if they were at home, I probably wouldn't see them because they'd be in their room. Yeah. True. But, um, that to me was the hardest thing, and I, all I try and do now is try and be as present a father, yeah. as a parent, as I can be, and sometimes probably over the top. And I recognise that at times, but you know what? I'll never get it back. No, that's true. I'll and, never get it back. And you want to know that you've left nothing behind. That business of regrets. This is a great Paul Simon song. Uh, I know a man who had a son uh, travel a long way to explain all the things he'd done. Uh, kissed his boys, he lay sleeping, turned around and went home again or whatever it was, slip sliding away. I don't have the exact quotes there, but that sense that you want to have as few regrets as you can because you can't explain to children no. uh, later on, oh, but you see, you must understand this and that. It's not going not to cut it for an inch. It, it, you, you know, and, and kids can be harsh judges as well. You know, they, they, the kids are not beyond being self-centered as they grow up themselves. But... Um, so even if you've done everything perfectly, you, you can be harshly judged. And we're not going to do everything perfectly. And there'll no. always be a justification for that stuff. And you're never going to be able to explain anything away. So um, just know to yourself that you've, you've tried. Oh, I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect. By, by, by no stretch of the imagination am I perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. But I'd like to think that sitting here today, that I've done in the last little while, I've done most everything as well as I possibly can. I'm sure you have. Um, so one final question, because we are here at, uh, at the, the hallowed Channel, Channel 10. 10. Uh, now, you've, obviously, you've worked through some of the networks, uh, 7, CNN, 9, 10. Have we missed any? No, I did, I did two years of radio on ABC National, Radio National, yeah. which I really enjoyed part-time while also working at Channel 10 more than full-time. I'll never work seven days a week again. I realise how selfish that is, but it was into, it was great fun to have that mix. Three AW, we've covered yeah, yeah. that. Um, one quick last question for you, Hugh. Um, what are the next five years have in store for you? Uh, probably retirement, whether I want it or not. Journalists never retire, but uh, they get retired sometimes, but they never retire. So I'll, I'll be writing anyway. I don't know. I'd like to be alive in five years, uh, <laughs> raising kids. I've got an eight-year-old, so yeah. I've still got a way to go. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I've got I've got no idea. Uh, Another book? You say you're writing? Maybe I'd like to write a novel. Uh, I've always had that in the back, but the book business is gone. E even those reliable big sellers are getting at best sixty percent of the book sales that they were getting even two or three years ago. Wow. Um, and 
and that's that's a sadness. I don't know if it's books. I don't know where it is. Podcasts are good, but there's no money in it. <laughs> well, I hope so. Uh, oh, there'll be, there'll be, no, there'll be money in it for you. Um, but uh, well, not yet, mate. I'm not sure. You know, just just hopefully find things that are interesting and and really maybe they trip away with Mary. I'd love to go to Mary. You know, she's never been to Paris, and I'd, I'd love to go to Paris with her. Well, your, your challenge to me was to get me in the car for 45 minutes. My challenge to you in the next five years is to get married to Paris. Yeah, okay. That's good. Yeah? Yeah. Why don't we touch base in five years? Yes, that's right. Let's, Let's do that. Go. Mate. I'll um, come up to your mansion, your podcast mansion on the hill. Well, so if Channel 10 takes it on, mate, we might be halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, mate, you're a good friend uh, and you're an awesome dad and I just, I, I'm really chuffed to have you in the car. I really am. An absolute pressure. Let me push my elbow towards you and we'll do the... Uh, <laughs> The manoeuvres of the time. I've yeah. got something in the back. Just one last yeah, thing. Yeah, mate, you grab it. Mate, thank you so much. Great to see you, Christian. Take yeah, care. you too, mate. Thank Drive you. safe. You're a good man, mate. Bonzo, I'm holding you on that. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll do drive it. drive around. We will do it, mate. I, I, I think it'll be cathartic in many ways. We'll pick a day and, and we'll drive around the place and I'll... Interview and I'll, I'll try to be as good as, as you've been. Mate, I hope I was okay. Mate, you're Fantastic. I really do appreciate um, it, mate. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Mate, you're awesome. And you're, you're awesome yourself, buddy. Get out, mate. Get, get, out. get out. Go and read the news. Yeah, thanks, mate. See you, matey. See you, Christian. See Take you. care, buddy. Cheers, mate. Well, that was Hugh. Hugh Rimmington. Just dropped him at the station, so he's probably there to carve out three or four more hours world news as we're so accustomed to hearing i really do appreciate hugh's time he's a very busy man media boy father husband but just an all-round nice guy i really do appreciate his time and sharing with me his story i look forward to other episodes to come please subscribe rate and review we do appreciate all the feedback we get ben and i do take it all on board so it's gratefully received and for those that have donated via the Patreon link on the webpage, aussieuber.com, very grateful for that. It does go back into what we're doing. So thanks again. And uh, we look forward to uh, more episodes in the coming uh, days and weeks.